Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Hello! Welcome! Thanks so much for being here today. For our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your preferred pronouns? Yes, I am Rebecca Crawford. I guess I go more commonly by Becca. And my pronouns are she, her. Thanks. I'm so excited to talk to you today. And for our listeners, can you tell us what you are currently researching? Sure, yeah. So very broadly, my research investigates phytoplankton biodiversity or community structure in Arctic and subarctic regions. So cool. So... I mean, I think a lot of us think about when we think about phytoplankton, it's just you know, in the middle of the ocean kind of floating around, but there's phytoplankton all the way up into the Arctic. Sure. Yeah, so what's kind of interesting actually is that the regions that I'm interested in, specifically the Bering and Chukchi Sea, which if you think about a map <laughs> and can picture that Alaska and Russia area, they're, they're right between, um, those seas are right between Alaska and Russia, and they're actually some of the world's most productive regions because they have super high nutrient concentrations and they're really, really important for fisheries on a local and global scale. So maybe maybe you think phytoplankton and picture the tropics. These Arctic regions are super, super important and very productive for phytoplankton. Wow, that's so cool. Basically, you're looking at the structure of the community and that could influence maybe how many fish are able to live in that area by looking at that, what exactly might that tell you about the future of fish populations? Totally. Well, that's actually a very good point because this project that I'm working on has that larger focus where this project is called the Oceans of Biodiversity Project, where really it actually is concerned about fish and what might affect fish. Um, and there's lots of different people involved in this project. Some of them are studying fish some are studying zooplankton, and then I'm here at the base of the food web looking at phytoplankton because, like you say, they're really important and could influence um, how fish populations do. And we've seen lots of environmental changes recently in the Arctic that do seem to be affecting the composition of phytoplankton. And this is really critical because phytoplankton is like this broad term to describe a whole bunch of different types of organisms, but there's some phytoplankton that are really good for an ecosystem because they have great fatty acids and can feed zooplankton and sometimes directly fish, which is great, but then there's also other phytoplankton that are really, really small, so you might have more transfers in the food chain, and then there's also harmful phytoplankton that produce demoic acid or other types of toxins that can kill fish, so it really is critical that we understand what these communities look like what type of environmental changes might influence the community structure so that we can understand um, how the fish are going to do and, and maybe even how many fish there will be. Sounds really important and like there's a lot of collaboration that goes into something like this. Definitely. That's been something that I really enjoyed about this project is just getting to work with lots of different people and that's great because um, I find sometimes my expertise are quite narrow. So it's been awesome to just like 
talk to someone else who's working on bacteria and, and get their input about techniques that I can use. Um, I love collaboration. I think it's awesome. And I feel like it's, it's one of the best ways we can research an ecosystem. Yeah, for sure. And it's one of the foundations of science. It sounds like there's a lot that goes into it, but I'm going to ask the big question yeah. about <laughs> climate change. Sure. So what do you think, if you have anything that you're willing to share, mm-hmm. how do you think that climate change is going to influence these phytoplankton populations? Yeah, so very important question because the Arctic, unlike the rest of the world, is um, changing uh, and warming twice twice as quickly as the rest of the regions around the globe. So this is an area that's changing really quickly, um, especially with temperature. And of course, one thing that we hear all the time is sea ice decline in the Arctic. And it's really interesting because on the one hand, what we see under warmer temperatures is sometimes you have primary productivity increase. And that initially looks like a really good thing. Um, On the other hand, there's also this kind of mismatch that's happening where specifically the Bering and the Chukchi Sea are seasonally ice-free. So generally throughout the winter, they're covered in sea ice and then kind of late spring, early summer, the sea ice starts to break up. Right when that happens, we have these massive phytoplankton blooms, and that's what's so good and productive for the region. But what we've been seeing for the past decade or so is that with warming temperatures, sea ice is declining earlier and earlier into the season. Um, There's also just issues with how sea ice melt and temperature affect ocean stratification. So if you can imagine, in the summertime, we have a lot of stratified layers of open ocean where because of their temperature and density organisms like phytoplankton might be confined to those layers and especially sea ice it's really cold um, but when it melts it's also super fresh and that creates this really thin layer of water that sits on top of the rest of the water and maybe right when it melts there are a bunch of available nutrients here that the phytoplankton can use up, but since they're confined to that layer, um, these blooms can crash really quickly and that could be a problem for supporting trophic levels um, throughout the season. So so there's lots of different things. Um, and just from what I've seen from my research so far, we see that temperature seems to be a pretty significant predictor of phytoplankton community structure. I don't want to ramble on, but I guess I just, there's like one more thing. Yeah, keep going for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As I'm talking, I'm just thinking about environmental effects can impact organisms in so many different ways. But one final thing that I'll say is just that if we have these warmer temperature, nutrient-limited regions, some type of phytoplankton that do really well are the picoplankton because they have a really small surface area to body size ratio. So they can absorb a lot of nutrients relative to their size. And so we see that under warmer conditions, it's these picoplankton that do really well. And that could be an issue in food web dynamics because they aren't as nutritious. A zooplankton might need to eat a lot of picoplankton, whereas if there are larger available phytoplankton, they can only have a few. So it, it affects trophic transfer and then just the global carbon cycle as a whole um, in terms of smaller phytoplankton not sinking, whereas larger phytoplankton sink and are able to remove carbon from the surface ocean, which when we think about rising CO2 is really important. Wow. (laughs) So there's a whole lot riding on this. Yeah. It's not just the temperature that's causing the changes. It's also the the seasonality, Mm -hmm. the timing, the quality of the food. 
And just thinking about our global CO2 input, output, sources, sinks, all of that can be affected by phytoplankton. Yes. Which is incredible to think about. So since you know so much about phytoplankton, Mm -hmm. would you like to share a fun fact with us? Yes, I have been thinking about this fun fact um, just because it came up recently uh, when I was looking at some of my data from Cambridge Bay, which is in the high Arctic, um, and we noticed that there's this marine ciliate that is super abundant, and I was like, what's going on? Like, what's it's, it's not photosynthetic, but it seemed to be very prevalent, and I was just doing some research about it, and I came across this term known as kleptoplasty, which, which I thought was great, and this refers to organisms that steal plastids from other organisms, and so this marine ciliate, Mesodinium rubrum, actually steals uh, plastids from this green algae called uh, cryptophytes, and I, I don't know, I just thought that's so funny that there's a word, kleptoplasty, um, and yeah, they steal these plastids, and not only that, they also are able to steal the nucleus of these cryptophytes so that they can maintain metabolic function of the plastids, and um, uh, I think it only has a half-life of like 10 days, so they have to make the most of their time, but kleptoplasts, it's not just people. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so break it down for me a little bit. Sure, sure. It sounds like there's one type of phytoplankton that's stealing something from another type of phytoplankton and then taking it in and like using it as its own without like any consent from yes, the other phytoplankton. It's definitely not non-consensual. Um, the other thing is that technically this organism isn't a phytoplankton. It's usually um, a heterotroph. Uh, so it's very advantageous when it steals these plastids because then it doesn't have to rely on other organisms as a food source. It can do photosynthesis itself. So super greedy organisms, <laughs> but so funny, I find. That is really cool. I mean, the more personally I learn about nature and everything that's going on, the more I'm like, whoa, all the stuff that I had never thought about before. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for sharing that. So obviously you love phytoplankton. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of love there. Can you tell me what you researched in the past and maybe how you got to studying phytoplankton today? In my undergrad, I I guess my major was technically earth sciences and I was doing a lot of like physical oceanography classes and geology classes, very limited biology, but I just happened to go on this week-long research cruise that was a field course and I guess got really involved uh, to the point where the professors pointed me to this PhD student at the university who was looking for an undergrad to go on another research cruise with her over the summer that was a month long Um, and this cruise was investigating methane seeps. You can think of it kind of like a hydrothermal vent except um, it these are seeds that produce methane, and they're really recently discovered to be along the Cascadia margin, which is all along the active margin from basically Southern California up into Canada, and um, they're cold, so they're called cold seeps, and she was studying the bacterial communities at these methane seeds to see if they were homogenous across seeps or or what trends might be influencing these bacterial communities. So that's where I started doing like environmental sequencing to study 
community structure, um, completely different environment. This is like deep sea versus the euphotic zone. And because I had that experience when I finished my undergrad, I just heard about this project at UVic and thought I can definitely apply a lot of the tools that I learned in this project and just study very different organisms. So that's how I got here, I guess. Yeah, and it seems like transition went really well. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about the environmental sequencing and the kind of methods that you use in order to figure out what's going on with community structure? Yes, definitely. And I feel like that's a pretty important question because historically, when we try to understand phytoplankton community structures, it's been based around collecting samples that are preserved for microscopy. And then it's experts who um, are able to look at these samples under a microscope and then assign taxonomy based on morphological differences, which I am so impressed with these experts because um, it's a super time-consuming process and a lot of species have really um, non-distinct characteristics, so so you really have to be well-studied in the area. But of course this process has issues because some species look very similar to one another and we really can't tell those differences. Of course, there's picoplankton that are simply too small to actually be able to identify on a light microscope. So when sequencing became really popular, people started thinking like maybe this is a tool that we can use to try and get a different approach at identifying phytoplankton. And so that is the technique that my work uses. Um, We use this technique called amplicon sequencing. So essentially I have all these samples that are collected from different regions and then I extract total DNA from all the samples, and then we use uh, this specific primer set that targets all eukaryotes, um, and it's just targeting this one region of the 18S gene called the V4, where differences in how this gene looks um, in terms of its sequences actually give us insight into different species. So amplicon sequencing, and it also has its problems for sure, but I think it's one way to try and solve some problems that we have from like typical bio-identification. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I mean, something that's great about modern science is that we have all these tools that can help us try to minimize error. And even, you know, there's always going to be some error in what we're doing. We're human and our tools aren't perfect. Mm -hmm. But what are maybe some ways that you can correct for that or once you write up your results, can explain a lot of sources of error. Yeah, so the biggest source of error from amplicon sequencing is just that we can really only comment on relative abundance of taxa. And this is because some organisms will have multiple copies of an 18S gene. So you look at the data and you say, wow, it looks like there were a lot of ketocerts. That's a type of phytoplankton. Um, when Uh, It could be that this organism might just have more copies of that gene. And so it's a useful tool, but it's definitely not a perfect tool. And one group in particular that's been known to be like a culprit for this are the dinoflagellates. It's kind of known that they have lots of copies of the 18S. So in my data, it looks like in some places there are lots of dinoflagellates. And we were thinking about this problem um, and what, what can we do to like try to be a bit more accurate or at least understand if this is a bias from the method. And so I myself have been doing some 
phytoplankton identification using a microscope, and I'm not doing it with every sample because, as I mentioned before, um, microscopy can be really time-consuming and very difficult, but basically I just have chosen like a subset of my samples that were preserved um, for microscopy, and I've just been trying to um, quantify the amount of um, taxa that there are in these samples from a broad perspective um, to see how well it aligns with the molecular data. And I still have some samples to get through, but one thing that I'm seeing is that yes, where it looks like in the molecular data there might be lots of dinoflagellates in these samples, from the microscopy I can see they're not actually as abundant as it would seem. So that's one thing that I'm trying to do to um, make this method more accurate, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, and it sounds like it's also really important for other researchers as well. You know, if you're overestimating the amount of a specific taxa or a specific species that you have, that can influence the results too. Mm -hmm. So really important work that you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me, you obviously love phytoplankton. Mm -hmm. You're really, really into it. Can you tell me what motivates you to do research and or science in general to explore the unknown and figure out what's going on. I feel a lot of people in BC would be able to tell this story, but ever since I was a kid, I felt passionate about the environment. <laughs> and um, just, I feel like maybe just raised with this understanding that climate change is a thing because my parents are environmental activists. Again, like probably a common theme with kids here. Um, but I was also always really interested in the ocean and, and loved it and being in it and learning about it. And so I think I just always felt that whatever I did with my life, I wanted it to be my love for the environment and also for the sea. Um, every choice that I've made has been trying to like follow those two things. That's a really broad answer, but it's also true. So <laughs> no, I think I think it's great. And honestly, like you said, I think a lot of people out here in BC on the West Coast really do have that same kind of mindset. It's just really interesting for me to see it coming from, you know, the Midwest where climate change isn't really having a ton of impact at the moment. It's there are signs that are happening. But out here, you know, there's a lot of changes that are happening. It's a little bit more obvious. And I think being raised with that mindset and hopefully for the younger generation too, where it's like really obvious and they are taking a lot of action, yeah. it can make a really big difference. Definitely. So love to see it. And you kind of mentioned like what sparked your interest in the ocean, mm -hmm. just being raised around it. But was there a specific moment where you were like, this is this is it, like the clouds open and <laughs> sunshine's pouring down? Yeah, well, there was like a general moment, which is just that we always used to visit my family on the East Coast. I grew up in Seattle, which is close to the Puget Sound. I never felt very passionate about the ocean when I was there, but we'd go to the East Coast and spend time on this passive margin um, on, on the beach. Um, and I just... I, I don't know, like for some reason that environment really fascinated me. And I was like, well, I have to study marine science because I love spending time on the beach. And then I went to university and got a chance to go on this research cruise and realized that actually the Pacific Ocean is super interesting and super cool. And I just like, I loved being at sea and I loved that, loved like hearing what other scientists on the ship were working on and how much they cared about their research and 
being at sea for a month and just dealing with whatever the ocean threw at us, like, I was like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which totally makes sense. So can you tell us a little bit more about what a normal day looks like for you? Maybe since you've been on a couple research cruises, mm-hmm. you can tell us what a normal day looks like for you on campus and what a normal day might look for you at sea. Sure. Very different. <laughs> um, on campus, I'm done with my lab work, but for a long time it was coming to campus, getting in the lab, doing some DNA extractions and PCR, um, taking little breaks for coffee and um, mental health uh, relief. <laughs> and then um, now I have a lot of my data back. So it's just a lot of time staring at a computer and trying to understand what I'm seeing and talking with my lab mates to ask them questions when I'm like, does this look weird to you? <laughs> um, yeah, it's just very like inside versus at sea. Every cruise is different and I've been on a cruise in the States and one um, that's in Canada and they are very different. Um, you're usually given a watch, which is like an amount of time that you have to be awake, where not only are you doing your responsibilities for your research, but you're also usually helping um, other scientists on the ship. So it this past summer, I did I circumnavigated Vancouver Island for my research cruise, and that was maybe... I never thought a cruise could get more like sleep-deprived um, until I went on that cruise because I I was given a watch that was, um, I believe that it was midnight to 12 p.m. the next day. Can confirm that is the worst watch. (laughs) I've done that and it's not fun. (laughs) Yes. And so that alone was like, okay, we're on night watch. That's great because you get to watch the sunrise. Um, And I was collecting my samples and then also collecting um, the team from iOS had a bunch of samples they needed to collect it. My issue is that there were specific locations where I needed to collect samples. And a lot of the times when I needed to collect those samples, it fell outside of my watch. So I was working from 12 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. and then sleeping for a couple hours. And I remember this one particular night where I had gotten off watch at 7 p.m. The next station I needed to sample from was supposed to fall like right after midnight. But I let the day team know if we hit the station early, Uh, can you just knock on my door and wake me up? Um, Because I need to get some samples. And uh, I go to sleep at 7 p.m. And then I hear banging on my door. And it's like 9.30. (laughs) And I'm like, what's going on? There must be some emergency. But no, we we had come to station really early. um, And that was not a lot of sleep. That being said, I really don't think I can complain because everyone who has some relationship with oceanography or being at sea is sleep deprived and working their hardest. And my experience is not unique. So I I don't want it to seem that way. It just, it's like what it is. <laughs> yeah. But I think a lot of times when people think about going to sea, you're like thinking of this wonderful journey out into the ocean, you know, the sun is rising. Everybody <laughs> looks so well rested. <laughs> and it's just like, wow. But the reality is not <laughs> like that at all. No. So I think it's great to talk about it, especially for people who are interested in going Mm -hmm. into a field like that, recognizing that, yeah, the hours are not great. And it takes a lot of like mental fortitude and determination in order to to get through it. Absolutely. You would say it's worth it? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
there's like a certain level of insane you reach where it's just really fun. <laughs> and everyone is just such a blast. Like I've never had, I, I, it probably exists, but I've never had a batch time with a crew at sea. So I just feel so fortunate in that, like it's such a great environment. Yeah. And as long as it's worth it and you feel good about it at the end, I think that's, that's what matters. Yep, definitely. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, what kind of obstacles did you face or do you face while doing research and how do you overcome those? Yes, it feels like this particular uh, project has had many. <laughs> I mean, the first is something that probably a lot of us share, which is just starting grad school and then the pandemic happening. I think I was supposed to get to UVic in May of 2020. That didn't happen. It was really hard coming from the States and getting um, a student visa because they were really delayed. So first it was just starting my project really late and then getting to UVic when no one was around. It was really hard to get help um, just because like it, people weren't around, which is so understandable because it was the pandemic. So it just felt kind of isolating. Um, and then there was... There were some samples I was supposed to be working on when I came here, but um, there was some issues with how they were preserved. And so I, I thought I would be working on something right away and then I wasn't. And like the biggest thing that's been the case with my project is just that there's a lot of waiting, like waiting until it's field season to collect samples. And then with the pandemic, um, sequencing facilities have been super slowed down because a lot of their resources have actually been going to um things that we need <laughs> because of COVID. Um, and so, whereas I used to be able to send samples out for sequencing and get them back in two weeks, it's been a matter of like four months of waiting. So I think, yeah, it's just been, there's been a lot of waiting, which has made this a bit of a long masters. And so I've just been trying to figure out how to fill that time to, to make the most of it. When I think about obstacles, I think those things are probably the, the biggest. In terms of, like, you mentioned it was really hard coming here and it was really isolating, mm -hmm. but as time has gone on, have you found supports that you need through, you know, the university or outside of the university? Yes, absolutely. It's been, I feel like when the summer came, it was like this beautiful thing, like the vaccines came out, and um, it just, one, I got to meet more people in my project, which was amazing. Um get help from some of the um, senior investigators that was really great and I got to meet a whole bunch of other grad students and we could share um, our experiences and that was wonderful and then um, side note I play the fiddle and <laughs> there was um, one of the reasons why I chose to come to Vancouver Island is because there's this old-time fiddle kind of bluegrass group that is very well known and I thought I'll come here and I'll have this and it'll be great and, and it was shut down but then finally last year um, it opened back up again and having that community has been amazing. I've played more music than I ever got to play in my undergrad and um, I think it's really important to have something like that outside of research because grad school can get really intense. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm glad that things have started to look up for you. And honestly, I do want to come hear you play the fiddle at some point because <laughs> it sounds amazing. And honestly, I think 
it is really important to have those support structures as outside of university as well, because like you said, it can get really intense. It can be a really big drain on mental energy. And it's important to have something outside of that that can make us happy. Mm-hmm. Is there something that you wish you had known before going into grad school that you would have told your younger self or would have made things maybe a little bit easier for the transition? I was very hard on myself at the beginning, um, just because things were moving so slowly and it going through a couple years of this and seeing everyone else work, there's a lot of things that I realize are just kind of universal experience. Like sometimes things don't work, that's okay. Don't beat yourself up because part of your experiment didn't work. That's absolutely what happens. And I know, I don't know. So I think just like, if I could have told myself, like, it's going to be hard, but don't be so hard on yourself. I also think I, one thing that I wish about grad school is that things are more transparent overall. And sometimes it feels like science is done in silos, which I, I've heard someone else say that, so I'm stealing their term. Um, and it seems like there's, it doesn't need to be that way. Like we can lean on each other. You can email someone else working on something similar and ask them for help. Um, and I guess that's more than something I tell my past self. It's something that I would like to take with me. And I'd like to do a better job about being transparent about what are the things that are tough about grad school? What are the things that maybe aren't okay? Um, so that people coming in know that they don't have to put up with some of the more unfortunate sides of academia. No, that was great <laughs> advice. I think it's really important for people to realize that, yes, you know, grad school is hard and a lot of things are outside of your control. Like no one could control the pandemic. And it's okay to like take a breath, be a little bit easier on yourself and take that time for self-care too. And also I really like what you said about being transparent because a lot of the times I think people think that what they're going through is only unique to them. Mm-hmm. And it's not until you know you start talking to other people that you realize, oh, they're going through kind of the same thing or maybe they're going through something that really crappy <laughs> and is just not okay and then they need the support also Mm -hmm. so i think that's a really important step to take and i'm very glad that you're taking it with you yes so now kind of on the flip side of that what are you looking forward to in the future with your research or just life in general Ooh, yes well sometimes i talk to the postdoc that i work with on this project and i talk about this seems really interesting in the data set. I wish I had more time, but I want to finish my master's. So, and she has said to me lots of times, like, you don't have to put this away forever when you're ready to come back to it. Like there, that's a possibility. Um, and like, there's a lot of side projects that I could see if, if there, there's like a lot of things where if I had known that it was going to look this way at the end of my project, I would have loved to study that at the beginning. Um, and you can't go back in time, but I can kind of file those ideas. And maybe when I finish this, um, take a little bit of a break, like could come back to those ideas. Um, on the other hand, I am really looking forward to being done and <laughs> maybe taking a step away from from academia for a little while and working like um, a job where you get to like put it away at the end of the day. That would be really nice. I, I feel the same way. Like, there's a whole lot of things 
that you can do in the future with your work and your research. And sometimes it feels kind of hard for it to come to an end, but maybe a change is good. And like you said, it is, it's not going anywhere. Yes. <laughs> like it will be there if you decide to go back to it. If anything, other people will have been working on it. And by the time you want to revisit it, there will be so much more information out there and people to collaborate with. Exactly. So thank you. Thank you other researchers for <laughs> like carrying it through. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am so happy that you agreed to come talk because this was absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much, Becca. And I'll see you soon. Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. <laughs>